And I remember that when I was the uh, cleaning officer on Sea Wing for about three years, um, I had a guy called Lawrence who was my number one cleaner. And the shift pattern meant that you worked every other weekend and one of those weekend days you worked an evening duty. And as the cleaning officer, I was allowed by management to get a cleaner out to clean the hot plate and clean the showers and then put, put, them, put them away last. But I always used to keep Lawrence out and make him a cup of tea and just have a chat with him for five, ten minutes, just check if he's okay and what was going on with him and with his family and stuff and then put him behind his door. And then fast forward many, many decades and I ended up being the governor of Aylesbury and the press office convinced me to do a, a programme called Aylesbury Prison. Um, and the, basically a camera crew had all access and video had been filmed for about three months and then made a programme. And uh, Lawrence was sat at home um, and his wife said, that prison where you were in when you were younger is on the telly. And he said, and he came in the room and looked, and there I am, his personal officer, waxing lyrical about the prison as its governor. And bless him, having never, ever heard from him, and why would you, um, he sent me a congratulations card. And it's, it's one of my most treasured possessions. And basically what he said was, he said, the nicest thing about you and the biggest thing that made such a difference was instead of, on a Sunday night, giving me a cup of tea out of an urn that's had the tea in it for about five hours and it's lost any resemblance of tea, you'd think nothing of going in the office and getting an officer's mug, bear in mind they had these plastic awful things, using a Typhoo tea bag, a proper tea bag, and make me a cup of tea and giving it to me, and you never thought anything of that. He said, but that was such a generous thing to me and then it was your conversations with me for five, ten minutes on a weekend that kept me out of trouble because I didn't want to let you down. And I just thought that was such a powerful thing. You know, and I've done, I've led officer, officer-led offending behaviour courses, some very basic ones that we did at Aylesbury, like a week long. And they work with people, absolutely. But, but with certain people, just those little moments of kindness can just crack open a door and and it certainly worked with him and I, and I just felt very grateful for the fact that he he shared that with me because it had such a profound effect on me it still does as you can probably tell from my voice the jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator was ignited by the sparks and there was a wall of fire there were three people in that elevator there was roy bell virginia and renee roy was the first one to jump through the fire and he suffered second degree burns Virginia jumped out right after he did, and she suffered third-degree burns. And Renee, who was the last one out, she died from her burns. All in a space of six, eight, ten seconds. That was the difference between life and death that day, at least for these three people. And she sees me, and she's a mess. She is. She has third-degree burns up and down her arms. Her clothes are burnt. Her hair is singed. She was a total mess. And she says to me, Ari, thank God, please help me. Whatever you do, please don't leave me. And I said to Virginia, I promise I will not leave you and we will get out of here. Now, here's a bit of irony. Virginia and I were not good friends. She was an internal auditor who had been hired the year before. And the first department she audited was mine. 
And needless to say, she didn't give me very good marks. As a matter of fact, she almost got me fired. And there we were. And we started to head down. We went down. We got down to about the 50th floor. Um, and Virginia goes, Ari, I can't go on, can't do it. And I said, no, Virginia, you can do this. I mean, I thought first, you know, maybe I'll have her sit down and rest a little bit and then we'll get up and keep moving. And then I thought to myself, if, if she sits down, she may ne- never get up. And if she doesn't get up, she's going to die. There was no doubt in my mind. And I said, no, not on my watch. And I went, Virginia, you can do this. And we gave her some people had some uh, bottles of water. We poured it on her arms to give her, you know, relief from the burns. We gave her to drink and I'm counting the floors down, you know, 45, 44, 42, 40. You're doing great. You're doing great. We got down to, uh, we got down to uh, the first floor. And the fire warden is still leading. I says, where are you going? He goes, we have to get out through the garage. So I turned to Virginia. I said, you know, we just came down 78 flights of stairs. What's another four or five? And we continued down. We got down two flights when all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some guy yells out, where are you people going? I said, we're going out through the garage. He goes, no, no, you can't come out. You can't go out through the garage. You have to come back up here and come out through the first floor. I turned to Virginia. I said, we got to go back up two flights. Well, she said a few things that I can't say in mixed company or in any company. (laughs) And we headed back up. Here's the thing. I found out later there were people in that garage that never got out. Who is the guy who opened the door? I don't know. I never saw him. All I heard was a voice. And why did he pick that moment to open the door? I don't know. But that guy saved our lives that day. So we get out on the first floor. We go out through the mall, through the atrium. We finally get out of the building. And I ask a cop, I said, I have a burn victim. Where should we go? He says, in front of the Millennium Hotel. We're setting up a triage center. Go there. We went there. Sure enough, an ambulance pulls up. I, I help Virginia into the ambulance. I breathe a sigh of relief because at least now she's getting medical attention, something I couldn't give her. Well, they wouldn't leave until they filled the ambulance because they were expecting a huge amount of casualties. They finally fill the ambulance. And I, and I'm, you know, I'm breathing a sigh of relief. And Virginia says to me, she says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. Now, I didn't really want to go anywhere at that point, because as soon as that ambulance leaves, I'm going back to the building to you look for my friends and coworkers and to help. I said, Virginia, you don't need me anymore. She turns to the ambulance driver and she says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. I look at the camp. I look at the ambulance driver. He looks at me. He's thinking this is not a cab service. I'm thinking I don't need a cab. Anyway, I said, you know what? Maybe for our own psychological well-being, maybe I should come. He says, fine, hop into the front. And I got into the front of that ambulance and we pulled away. We were one of only a few ambulances that actually got away from the scene that day. You know, Virginia thanks me every single day for saving her life. And I tell her, you got it all wrong. If she wouldn't have insisted I get into that ambulance, I would have been standing at the base of that building when it came down and I'd be dead. No doubt in my mind but she insisted that I get into that ambulance. And that's why I'm here today to tell you my story. Thinking about this, and I thought that I'll just give a brief background as to why, you know, as to how it happened that we were sent away. I was eight and my brothers were eight and uh, I was the youngest girl in the school because I was sent a week after my eighth birthday, a term early, in fact. Um, And it's very normal for prep schools to take children from even younger than that, but generally eight to 13 
in preparation to send children uh, to a public school, you know, some of the top schools in this country. And uh, the raison d'etre of a prep school is preparation for a common entrance pass, uh, which is a bit like 11 plus in, you know, in the grammar system, in the state system. But it's for um, highly competitive, you know, masculine institutions. And the girls, the girls sort of follow a similar path, but I don't think it's quite as um, rigid, really. Uh, but that was the purpose of a prep school. And um, it happens that in my family, both my mother and my father were sent away to boarding school. So it, it, it's very often in families. And my, my father was sent to a Catholic Jesuit school when he was four years old in Bournemouth. Um, and later he won a scholarship to Dartmouth Naval College. So his background is very military and his his family were military, ar- army. <clears throat> and um, my father put my elder brother's name down for Sherborne at birth. Um, and it was always his intention to send us to boarding school um, at the age of eight. But he was pensioned out of the Navy because he nearly died of a burst peptic ulcer when he was about 28. And he had to find a second career that would fund it. And he, he had four children. Uh, so a tax-free salary in the Gulf was one of the ways that he could achieve that since the Navy weren't going to fund it as he expected. Because, you know, the, the armed forces, especially officer ranks, uh, will fund a top public school education, the same as diplomatic corps. So up until the age of seven, I was sent to a local primary school. I had a very normal childhood really um a little a sort of very smart nursery um but i had a couple of years in a in a sort of state primary school and i was entirely happy with my elder brother you know very normal very colorful memories very happy happy days and then my parents sold our family house moved out to uh, qatar uh, where dad helped set up the qatar air force um he was their chief test pilot and um, my elder brother and I were both sent to boarding school. John was um, John was nine, and I was seven when I first sort of was introduced to uh, his headmaster and saw where he was going. And I was sent a term later to my school, which was an all girls prep. And um, I was very lucky. I'll, I'll explain later. But um, it was a very yeah very sort of idyllic prep school for girls um, in, a, in a different place from my brother. And my grandparents were our guardians. Um, they, they lived in the New Forest. And um, they used to have us for half terms and um, collect us and put us, put us on uh, BOAC flights where we'd fly out to Qatar unaccompanied minors uh, from, you know, from such a young age. It's quite shocking because uh, I have children now, that, that that was a sort of normal practice. But, uh, yeah, that's what, that's what happened, really. I lost everything familiar. And um, I was sort of left by my mother holding Matron's hand in the hallway um, of this, you know, place I'd never been in my life. And it was, I think it was a trauma that's never, ever left me. And I've never felt important again. Yeah, I became addicted to heroin um, when I was younger, a young adult, and I was addicted for several years. 
Then I started being pulled into the criminal justice system. I was arrested about a half a dozen times for drug possession. And in all of those jail sentences, I had I got fired from my job for missing work. I became homeless and my addiction really accelerated. And shortly after that, my mother passed away from an accidental overdose of her prescription drugs, her prescription morphine. And she had left me with a life insurance payment. And so for the first time in my life, I had more money than I could spend, than I knew what to do with. Uh, but I still was very addicted to heroin and very much wanted to die. At that point, my addiction, I was in late stage addiction. I had trashed my own life and then my mother had passed away. And I, and I had an, a very intense sense of guilt and remorse about that because she never lived to see me get clean or see me get my life together after all the, you know, the good start in life she had provided me. I had squandered that. Uh, and it was in that moment that I was buying larger quantities of heroin just because I could afford to. And one of my best friends, in fact, very man who first showed me how to smoke heroin off of tinfoil six years prior when Oxycontin became so expensive, we could no longer afford them. Uh, he texted me looking for a gram of heroin and I sold it to him. And uh, the next day my apartment was raided by the police and I was placed in handcuffs and I was told I was facing de delivery resulting in death of Justin, of my best friend. And that, that would carry a 20 year mandatory minimum sentence. And a short time after that, I was actually arrested and, and put into jail and I was detoxed off of heroin. And those were the first moments I was sober since the death of both my mom and Justin. And I was eventually pled down to a lesser charge and sentenced to only, quote, only uh, five years in prison. And, and I went to federal prison. I released and now I started studying public health and working in public health. I've since been appointed by the governor of my state to the Alcohol and Drug Policy Commission. I work as a research, research associate at Health and Justice Action Lab, which is just the intersection of the criminal justice system and public health or substance use and criminal justice. And it's not just a, like an academic think tank, it's really trying to make these policies become reality. Um, in the country. And so I'm really proud of the work I do there. And I'm about to graduate with my bachelor's degree here in June.